You ever been to an art gallery and stood looking at a piece of art for a while and went, I don't know what they're trying to say here. I had looked at this video through the same lens. Couple of thoughts on that. Um, yeah, no, I did, had no interest in being a part of the interpretive dance in that video. Second thought, when I first watched that, I thought, when was it exactly that interpretive dance went out of vogue in churches? I mean, we know why, but when was that? I'm going to say somewhere about the same time that the movie Sixth Sense, Bruce Willis, was in the theaters. You remember this movie? Spoiler alert. But come on, if you haven't seen it yet... I see dead people. There are two types of moviegoers in the world. There are those who like to go to a movie simply to get a big old tub of popcorn and to escape the world and just be entertained for maybe a couple of hours. There's that type of person. Then there's the, there's the type of person who enjoys a movie like The Sixth Sense. Two days later, you're like, wait a minute. Okay, he was alive that whole time. Does that mean this scene, and then what about this, and then, oh my goodness, you're still thinking about the movie a couple of days later. One of my favorite books is for not the first type of person, but the second type of person. I have recommended this book to a whole bunch of peers, uh, pastoral leadership type of people over the years, and I've processed it together with several people over the years. And usually people, how they interact with this book, well, it depends on which of those two types of moviegoers they are. Today, welcome to our last uh, sermon in this fun sermon series. All summer long, we've been looking at jerks of the Bible. Today, as you just saw, we're looking at this Old Testament jerk, the original hippie freak of the Old Testament, Absalom, long hair. You saw that in the video. There's this book. It's called A Tale of Three Kings, one of my favorite books. I reread this book at least every couple of years. It always makes me stop and think. The Tale of Three Kings, one of the kings is King Saul, the mad king in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel. He loses his throne. There were some significant issues before God. Second king in the book is King David. He's described later in the New Testament, we're going to look here in a minute, as a man after God's own heart. Third king, well, he's our jerk today, Absalom, the upstart king literally leads a rebellion against the Lord's anointed, against the second king, King David, in the book. Rebellion, heart sickness, pride, looking to overthrow and steal what actually belongs to the Lord that is entrusted in David's hands at this point. There are several things in this book that make me think. I want to read an excerpt, if I can, from chapter 20. This is the moment where we see rebellion foment in his heart, and it begins to spill over. Listen in. It warmed your heart to know a man who saw things so clearly. Discerning. Yes, that was the word that best described Absalom. Discerning. He could penetrate to the heart of any problem. Men felt secure just being with him. They even longed to have time with him. Talking with him, they realized that they themselves were wiser than they realized. Such a revelation made them feel good. 
As he discussed problem after problem and solution after solution, men began to long for the day when this would be their leader. He could right so many wrongs. He gave them a sense of hope. But this imposing, insightful man would never deliberately hasten the day of his own rule. They were confident of that. He was far too humble, too respectful of his father. And those around him began to feel a little frustrated that they would have to keep waiting for the better days of this man's rule. The more they sat in his living room and talked, the more they realized that things were amiss in the kingdom. Yes, things amiss that they had never even thought of before. And problems. Problems were coming to light of which they had never dreamed. Yes, they were really growing in wisdom and insight. As the days passed, more and more of them came to listen. Word spread quietly. Here is one who understands and has answers. The frustrations came. They listened. The frustrated came. They listened. They asked questions. They received excellent answers and began to hope. Heads nodded. Dreams were born. As time passed, there were more such gatherings. Ideas turned into stories, stories of injustice that others might have deemed trivial, but not this listener. He was compassionate. And as those around him talked and discovered injustices, it seemed to grow in number and severity. With each new story, men were more shocked at unfairness that was now, it seemed, rampant. But as the quiet, wise young man sat quietly and added not a word to these murmurings, he was too noble, you see. He always closed the evening conversations with a humble word of deference toward those in positions of responsibility. Yet he grieved more and more. It was obvious that some reports drove him to agony. Finally, his righteous anger broke out in cool, controlled words of strength. These things ought not to be. He stood, eyes blazing. If it were my responsibility, this is what I would do. And with these words, the rebellion was ignited. Ignited in all but one, that is, in the man who seemed noblest and purest, this was not the case. Rebellion had been in his heart for years. There's something about an Absalom heart that even from the outside can look so pure, healthy. On the inside, there's some profound brokenness. It reminds me of a passage of Scripture that we should look at closely. This passage of Scripture in Proverbs was actually written by our jerk today's brother. Absalom's brother, King Solomon, wrote this. Honestly, truth be told, it was likely heard as a proverbial saying from their father, King David. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, I love this. Above all else, above all else, guard your heart. I memorized this verse when I was a kid out of that translation. For it is the wellspring of life. That's poetic. I like the way a newer translation in the NIV puts it. 
Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from your heart. Would you agree? It's important to guard your heart. And today I want to challenge you to take a journey to look inward. As we look at this last jerk, we're looking at Absalom. We're going to look at his story, how rebellion kind of grows, ferments in his heart, and it just comes spilling over, and oh my goodness, some awful things happen. But as we look at him, again, these jerks of the Bible, we're looking at what not to do. Would it be wise for us to examine our own hearts? Let me ask you this question, and only you can answer this question. This is between you and God, and we're going to end the message today with an opportunity to sit quietly and just kind of soak this in, and you're going to think about this before your God. How healthy, how healthy is your heart? I want to compare, if I can, and contrast a tale of two, two kings, King David, father, King Absalom, the upstart, rebellious king, King Absalom. We're going to compare and contrast the heart health of these two men. It reminds me of a quote by Shakespeare. It is a wise father who knows his own child. As a daddy of four boys, five kids. Yeah, I agree with Shakespeare. How about this one? Homer says this, it is a wise child who knows his own father. And as a son, I resonate with that. And I wonder if Absalom should have leaned into that just a little bit. I want to share with you today four guards, if you will, if you're called to guard your heart. Here's four ways you can guard your heart. First of all, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Guard your heart's diagnostics. How do you diagnose what's really going on? inside your heart. Let's compare and contrast, shall we? Absalom and King David. An Absalom heart, well, likes a mirror. That might be a bit of an antiquated analogy. Let's look at this, though. Let's look and see who Absalom really is. 2 Samuel chapter 14. I'm in verse 25. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised, which means people are talking about him, right? He's been hearing since he was a little boy his handsome appearance as Absalom. He was that little boy who got his cheeks pinched all the time and people would ruffle his hair. He was a handsome young man. He grew up to be a very handsome adult. He was the Brad Pitt, Ryan Reynolds, Jason Momoa all rolled up in one of his day. I don't know who your favorite heartthrob is, but go ahead and take your pick there. I, I suppose we would illustrate your type based on who you would choose from this. I kind of picture him as a Jason Momoa mostly because of the hair right? Absalom had hair. Well, don't take my word for it. Let's continue reading in the text. I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 14. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. I had a wedding a couple weeks ago, and I'm getting dressed. I happened to look in the mirror and noticed I had a pimple right on the end of my nose. I'm 48 years old, and my body is still betraying me. Apparently, that's not the case for Absalom. Top of his head to the bottom of his feet, not a blemish on him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time because it became too heavy for him. 
When's the last time you went to get a haircut and the reason why you went was because your hair had simply gotten too heavy? Well, I guess that was the case for Absalom. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. That doesn't mean anything to you and me today. We don't know how much that weighs, except we do. Scholars have done the work. According to the National Library of Medicine, by the way, this is a .gov site, I found this. That's actually about five pounds. Dude's walking around with five pounds of hair on his head. They editorialized and said it this way. That's quite a weight to be carrying around on one's head. No kidding. This is Absalom. Here's the thing. I think that Absalom could very well be the patron saint of the Graham culture. You know what I'm talking about? Instagram, selfie culture. Instagram culture, social, social media culture. I just recently, last week, had a conversation, Don and I did, with a, with a young uh, a set of young parents. And we were talking about their kids who are a step or two on the journey behind our kids, a bit younger. And we were sharing the story that our kids didn't get a cell phone until they were in high school. They reacted the same way that you just winced, just a little bit. I'll never forget one of my boys, freshman year of high school, he finally got mom and dad's old phone were given to them their freshman year. And it was after the conversation, hey, uh, everybody else in my class has a cell phone. And I was like, that can't be true. That's not, not the case. Not everybody. Well, you know, I was, yeah, everybody else did. And our kids were like the last to get them. We're trying to guard their heart against, oh, I was a youth pastor for so long. My goodness. The idea that your bully, you can't leave your bully at school but you bring your bully home to your bedroom, to your living room with you each and every night. Oh, our kids are under so much stress. Instagram culture today. I was um, walking downtown Detroit with uh, four-sevenths of our family. We did a vacation a couple of weeks ago. By the way, Dawn found a cool way to explore a new city. It was like an online scavenger hunt. You can kind of pay a small fee and you're fine. It was so cool. We could have taken the kids to a museum to learn all this stuff, but they would have been bored in about 10 minutes. But we spent, I don't know, several hours hiking around downtown Detroit. I bet we hiked six, maybe eight miles that afternoon, saw all kinds of cool things, learned all kinds of cool things about the city. And we kept, as we're walking around, we kept noticing an older gal, like a mom, with a child, both of them dressed all in pink. And then we would see a couple of moms and a whole gaggle of little girls all dressed in pink. Occasionally, we'd see a dad wearing a pink T-shirt, and he'd have a whole bunch of little girls with him as well. After a while, we realized this has to be a thing. Something's going on. And we stumbled across this scene, downtown Detroit. I've got this picture right here. It's... Um, it's a pop-up party for Barbie, the Barbie movie. I can't comment on the Barbie movie. I have not seen it yet. Um, my experience with Barbie, I think like a dad who would step on those toys in the middle of the night when I'd go out. to. That's how I interact with Barbie, how I think of Barbie. But it was so interesting to watch all of these. And there were, it wasn't just moms and kids. There were a bunch of like 20-something, a gaggle of girls would show up to this as well. And I took this picture because it was in the middle of a selfie-taking moment. And I kind of snapped this picture real carefully. I'm glad I got what I get. You can't see this gal's face because I'm getting ready to talk about her. 
She's dressed to the nines, top to bottom, in pink. She's got the pink shoes, a pink purse, the whole nine yards. And I stood there for, I don't know, it felt like forever, watching her do this thing with her phone. And she's trying to get just the right thing, and she's doing all the things. And it felt like if I had walked in on that when I was a teenager and somebody was in the mirror doing those faces, and we did this as teenagers, I would have felt embarrassed for her, and I would have felt embarrassed myself. But here we are out in the middle of broad daylight. You know what I'm talking about because you've watched this. Maybe you've done it yourself. I worry. I worry about our culture, the Instagram culture. Could it be that Absalom would be the patron saint of the Graham culture? I included a link to an article if you'd like to read up on this a little bit. If you go to the sermon notes page in our app, scroll to the bottom, you'll see a link there to a a two-and-a-half-year-old article, which in the Instagram culture is an eternity. But two-and-a-half years ago, Glamour Magazine put this piece out, and it's worth reading. It talks about, here's some of the highlights When you're scrolling, doom scrolling, they call it now, through social media, your brain is getting a bit of a dopamine hit each time. This is the quote that caught my attention. Your brain changes moment by moment according to what you expose it to. When social media becomes what you overwhelmingly expose it to, you allow your brain to start changing networks and making neurotransmitters fire incorrectly. They won't fire in harmony and your brain waves won't be coherent. This all causes abnormal pathways in the brain. They say this is beginning to hurt our deep thinking abilities as a culture. This was interesting. Instagram is the Las Vegas of comparison, this expert says. Comparing Instagram to a slot machine. After all, we keep dragging to refresh, scrolling to see more, perhaps gambling with our brains and mental health each time we do. The word for it is doom scrolling. Gen Z is starting to limit themselves. They see this sickness inside them. Millennial parents, please limit your kids. Be careful what you're exposing them to. We're comparing and contrasting hearts. We looked at an Absalom heart. An Absalom heart likes a mirror. Let's contrast that, can we? Maybe maybe we should say a selfie or an Instagram. Let's look at David. David values, conversely, a Holter monitor. What's that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Here's what it is. This is an image from John Hopkins University. It's a portable ECG machine. It tracks diagnostically. It's trying to get at what is going on with your heart. It's designed to go with you even everywhere you go. If they strap one of these on you, they're trying to figure out what is the symptom that we're experiencing and why is it happening. Let's monitor the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, speaking of David, Do not consider his appearance or his height. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. Instagram culture, uh, culture the mirror that Absalom is so fond of. But the Lord looks at the heart. David is described then in the New Testament, looking back on this passage in Acts chapter 13. Well, let's read it. After removing Saul, he, God, made David their king. He, God, testified concerning him, I've found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That's what we're aiming for, right? That host or monitor 
Do you monitor your heart? My wife, Dawn, before I met her, before we were dating, actually she had something that made her have to wear one of those as a high school student. It affected everything about her life, as I understand it, including her, uh, she had a good friend who had designed and built a dress, sewed a dress for her to wear to prom. They had to redesign that dress, well, because of those heart leads that she had to wear, and they tried to cover those up. But everywhere she goes, she's getting a readout, and they're able to process this later. What is going on with your heart? Could I invite you to look at King David, see what's healthy about his heart, and go inward, examine yours. Here's one. David was faithful. One of David's biggest attributes was that he was faithful to the Lord. No matter what he was going through, David trusted the Lord in every part of his life. It's evident in how David took down Goliath when he was a young man. Though everybody was expecting him to fight Goliath with the normal battle weapons and armor, maybe you know this story, David didn't do that. He listened to the Lord, and he killed Goliath with a slingshot and a rock. David was faithful. David also loved the Lord. Anybody who's read the book of Psalms can recognize that David loved the Lord and he sought to do what God commanded him to do. I love in Psalm 119 when he says, Oh, how I love your law. It's your meditation. It's my meditation all day. He loved the Lord. David was repentant. While David was an incredible man, he failed in some big ways. He was human. His biggest failure, perhaps, was with Bathsheba, with Solomon's mother. David disobeyed the law when he lusted after Bathsheba and he stole her from her first husband. Once David realized that he had messed up, though he repented and he asked forgiveness from the Lord. If you don't believe me, read Psalm 51 and just see the broken spirit on display in that poetic language. David was honest. David was thankful. David was honest with his feelings to God, and he was thankful for all that God had done for him. The Psalms is full of David lamenting to the Lord about hardships, as well as David thanking the Lord for being faithful in his life. As you think about your heart, can you resonate with David in that? We're guarding our heart against some stuff. I want to guard our heart now, if I can, uh, with outflow. Guard your heart's outflow. We talked about diagnostics. Let's spend some time looking at what is coming out of your heart. What's spilling out of your heart? We'll compare and contrast an Absalom heart. Well, what's coming out? Well, his heart is seething with anger. I love this quote by Abraham Lincoln. You can tell the greatness of a man by what makes him angry. Absalom has cause for anger, but he doesn't deal with it in a healthy way. Absalom was the third son of King David. He was never expected to be king due to his illegitimate birth, and he had older brothers. But he became a great man in the kingdom of Israel. Absalom's mother was Makkah, was her name. David loved his sons very much, and they became mighty men. They became into high positions of the government. But Absalom became angry because his sister Tamar was raped by another one of David's sons, by Absalom's half-brother. 
And the Bible was clear in the Old Testament, the penalty for this is, well, not good. It's an evil act. The man refused to marry Tamar, and um, David's angry. He doesn't do what Absalom thinks he should do. And so Absalom starts fostering anger and bitterness toward his brother Amnon for nearly two years until one day he takes matters into his own hands. He avenges the rape by having Amnon murdered. You've heard that phrase, two wrongs don't make a right. Here it is, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike him down, kill him. Don't be afraid. Have I not given you this order? Be strong and brave. So this is exactly what happens. Absalom's men did to Amnon what Absalom had ordered. This act, believe it or not, like the story we read from a bit ago, This stirs rebellion in the community. This stirs rebellion in the whole nation. Actually, this increased Absalom's fame, and it gave him more influence over people. Let's contrast these two hearts, shall we? An Absalom heart is marked by what's coming out of it. It's marked by seething anger. What marks David's heart is righteous anger. The things that move his heart toward anger are the things that break the heart of God. Psalm chapter 10 says this, Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from this land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Psalm 10, David expresses his anger. He's infuriated that the wicked people of his time are doing what they're doing to the poor, what they're doing to the innocent. David demonstrates the best way to handle righteous anger. He seeks revenge, right? No. We just read it. He takes it to the Lord. He begs for God's intercession on behalf of the victims, many of whom were silenced due to fear of retribution. Guard your heart. What else can we guard our heart against? Well, guard your heart against, uh, well, motivation. We're guarding our heart's diagnostics. We're guarding our heart's outflow, what's coming out of them. But also we need to guard our heart's motivations. Go back like three or four steps. What's pouring into your heart that gets you to the action step that you see? I love this moment in this book that I referenced earlier. King David is having an honest conversation with one of his closest advisors. He's learned that rebellion is happening. He's learned that Absalom has rallied the troops and he's seeking to steal the kingdom from David, the Lord's anointed. God had entrusted him with this responsibility and now his own son is out to steal it. This is the conversation as surely as the sun rises. People's hearts will be tested, David is speaking. Despite the many claims and counterclaims, the hidden motives within the hearts of all who are involved will be revealed. This might not seem important in the eyes of men, but in the eyes of God, such things are central. The motives of the heart will eventually be revealed. 
God will see to it. David replies, I despise such tests. I hate such nights as this one. My soul is heavy. Yet God seems to send many, many things into my life that test this heart of mine. Once more, this night, I find my heart on trial. What do I do? My son, my rebellious son, what do I do? Well, in Absalom's heart, what is it motivated by? Well, it chases the limelight. His whole uh, adolescence and childhood and young adulthood is marked by this idea of chasing the limelight. Why in the world did he conspire against David? Well, he was chasing the limelight. His bitterness toward David became apparent. He begins to manipulate the people of Israel against their king. He constantly undermines David, and he feels that he should be made king. He learns that he will not be made king. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says to David, your offspring will sit on Solomon's throne. Absalom hears this. He does not get the throne. God is not going to give it to him, so he seeks to take it for himself. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, look at the language that describes Solomon. In the course of time, Absalom provides himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Can you imagine the ego? He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. This is what's going on in that chapter we read at the top of my message. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take a hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all of the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. God intervenes. And God tells David through one of his servants, Hushai, 2 Samuel 15, verse 31, David had been told there's a whole bunch of people conspiring with Absalom. It seems that Absalom had more pride and he had more character, or he had more pride rather than character, because no matter how many times David tried to forgive Absalom for rebelling, he continued to do so. 2 Samuel chapter 13, but David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three days, and the spirit of the Lord long, or the spirit of the king rather longed to go to Absalom. A father who was discussing his wayward son with a friend received this reply. If he were my son, I would kick him out. The father answered, Yes, if he were your son, so would I. But he isn't your son. He's my son, and I can't do it. This is the dilemma that David feels himself in. All kinds of things happen in the story. The fall happens when Absalom, in the middle of a battle, gets 
he, he loses his life because he, his hair, that hair that was like his pride and joy, he'd cut it and weigh it, and it's even recorded in Scripture, gets tangled up in a tree. He's hanged by his own hair, and some of David's men kill him. This shows another example that pride comes before destruction. Pride, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It would be wise for us to recognize that. Again, to go inward in our hearts, Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, describes this in Proverbs chapter 16. But his brother, his half-brother, fomenting rebellion in his heart, we examine Absalom's heart, and we see all kinds of things stirring there. But if I were to pick just two I would list these two, pride and bitterness. He's proud, and it's consumed his heart. He's angry, and he's allowed bitterness to take root there. Could I just invite you, would you look at those two words and go deeply inside your own heart and ask the question, where is there pride that you've allowed to stir in your heart? Where is there bitterness that you've allowed to leave and and let take up residence there? There are so many lessons we can learn from this narrative, but the bottom line is don't be an Absalom. Don't be a jerk. David's heart. Absalom chases the limelight. David is a reluctant leader. Oh, my goodness, you can do a study of Scripture, and you can see over and over again that David, he doesn't really want the throne. It's gifted to him, and he reluctantly takes that, and he puts on the burden of leadership. Why? Because he's seeking to serve God. He takes this to such a high value that he's even presented the moment to take the the, the kingship from King Saul. One of my favorite places in Israel is a cave system called En Gedi, and it's in that place that David... David has the opportunity to sneak up and kill Saul, and he had good reason to. Saul had been trying to kill him for a long time. David passes that opportunity up. He says, far be it from me to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. And he lives his whole life that way. And at the end, one of his own sons tries to take advantage of that beautiful heart. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. David knew that leadership was a burden. Can I challenge you? In the things that you're seeking to guard, last but not least, guard your heart's legacy. An Absalom heart. An Absalom heart, after we seek to guard our heart's legacy, an Absalom heart builds monuments to itself. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 18, during his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. And so he named the pillar after himself, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. It does not exist anymore, but get this. In the spirit of Absalom, about a thousand years after he died, somebody actually carved out of the rock in that same location a pillar, and they call it to this day the tomb of Absalom. You could see it even to this day. The spirit of Absalom, it still lives, and we have to be so careful to guard our heart against building monuments to ourselves, 
That's not the legacy we're called to live out. I love this quote from St. Ephraim, the, the Cyrene. If you give your life to the earth, the earth will give you a tomb. But if you give your life to heaven, heaven will give you a throne. David's heart. David's heart doesn't build a monument to itself, but rather invests in worship for God. There's this beautiful story. David wants to build a temple for God, and he goes to build, he goes to buy, rather, the space where the temple would be built. It's owned by a gentleman. It's a threshing floor. And the guy says, listen, you're the king. I'll just give it to you. But David says, no, 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 I'm in 2 Samuel 24. No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen even for the sacrifice, for the worship service. And he paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and he sacrificed. And the legacy that he leaves behind, well, you could still go see it today. They built a temple on that site and worshipped for a thousand years. And then another temple was built on that site. He left a legacy of worship before the one true God. How? By actively choosing to follow God, to guard his heart. It's the wellspring of life. I want to end where we started. We're going to have a moment to go inward here in a second, and I'm going to invite you over communion to simply look inward and examine your heart, to guard your heart, to do the good and difficult heart work. David and Zadok, his advisor, were alone once more. And now, what will you do, David? In your youth, you spoke no word against an unworthy king. King Saul, you could have taken his life even. What will you do now with an equally unworthy youth? He and his people are marching on Jerusalem even as we speak. As I said, replied David, there are times I hate the most, Zadok. These are the times. Nonetheless, against all reason, I judge my own heart first and rule against its interests. I will do what I did under Saul. I will leave the destiny of the kingdom in God's hands alone. Perhaps he's finished with me. Perhaps I have sinned too greatly and am too longer worthy to lead. Only God knows if that is true, and it seems he will not tell. Then clenching his fist, yet with a, a touch of wry humor in his voice, David added emphatically, but today I shall give ample space for this untelling God of ours to show us his will. I know of no other way to bring about such an extraordinary event except by doing nothing. The throne is not mine, not to have, not to take, not to protect, and not to keep. I will leave the city. The throne is the Lord's. So is the kingdom. I will not hinder God. No obstacle, no activity on my part lies between me and God's will. Nothing will prevent him from accomplishing his will. If I am not to be king, God will find no difficulty in making Absalom to be Israel's king. Now it is possible. God shall be God. The true king turned and walked quietly out of the throne room, out of the palace, out of the city. He walked and he walked into the bosoms of all men whose hearts are pure. By doing nothing, he did everything. By doing nothing, 
Oh, things like getting even by letting his anger consume him, letting his bitterness take root, letting his pride overwhelm him. Could I invite you that right now this might be a good space to do nothing, and in doing that, do something. Let's prepare our hearts and our minds for communion.